Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we are discussing Halloween 20. Wait we a minute. It feels skip- like there are that many sequels at least. <laughs> <laughs> we skipped 7 through 19 and we jumped straight to 20. Yep. No, no I'm just kidding. <laughs> Today we are discussing Halloween water. <laughs> My favorite kind, Halloween water. Pumpkin spice water. Perfect. There the perfect go. combination. Exactly. No, we are discussing the oddly and silly title uh, Halloween H2O. 20 years later this is your co-host corbin i'm alan from chicago and yeah this is an odd title i will never get over the fact this movie is called h2o yeah like maybe if it made sense that they use h2o in the title then i'd buy it but given the movie and then given that we just watched the movie it doesn't make any sense and there's only one water sequence. It's raining once, and that's it. Yeah. That's all the water we get. I think I saw that the only real connection is that H2O, its chemical pH level is 7.0. That being Ooh. the seventh movie in the franchise, ta-da, H2O. But that's wow. stupid because it doesn't connect to the movie at all, except mm. for that it's the seventh Halloween movie. Anyways. Right, H stands for Halloween, 20 is for 20 years later. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a mess. So instead of going with Halloween 7, they kind of wanted to distance themselves from the titling that we got started with Halloween 4, a.k.a. the entire Curse of Thorn trilogy. So you would be forgiven if you thought that this movie took place 20 years after Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. But that is not the case. And this is where the entire timeline and canon is changed. And if you have questions about that, go ahead and look in the description below. And you click on the link to hear me discuss all of the Halloween canon timelines. That way you won't be confused. You'll understand why these choices were made and which films match up with which. Anyways, so originally this was going to be Halloween 7 possibly titled the revenge of laurie strode i didn't get any sourcing from that one but i've heard that kind of talked about across the internet so yes it was originally going to connect with halloween 6 we'll talk more about that in a little bit after we mention spoilers because in order to talk about that i feel like we have to say some spoilers but anyways the creators of this film halloween 6 uh pretty much tanked and uh, 4 was kind of a return to the franchise. People were really excited, but it just went downhill from there. So in order to kind of get rid of uh, the heaviness and the craziness that went on with the previous trilogy that really took it so far away from its roots, it was unrecognizable. It didn't feel like Halloween anymore. The creators decided to just completely remove four through six from canon yeah just all right this is start over forget three through six ever happened we're gonna go back yeah i was a bit confused going into this i was like oh that's stupid why would Lori be alive mm-hmm. when we're right after the events of six of course I, I picked up not long after that 
that it was a retcon. We're axing uh, three through six, technically four through six. And we're just kind yes. of continuing on from now. I guess it's considered a trilogy at this point. Technically, I suppose. Yes. To many fans I've heard over the years, this is this caps off what they see as kind of the perfect Halloween trilogy, which would consist of Halloween one, Halloween two, and then Halloween H2O 20 years later. And those are all within canon of each other. And people just like to think of those as the trilogy and then of course you have your purists who only think of halloween one and then some who go halloween one two and then this one i get into that in my discussion that you can go ahead and listen to but honestly i don't know of any other theatrical series that has done this of course many have rebooted the series and in a way this is uh it's kind of a soft reboot but it still ties in with previous installments i don't know any of any other theatrical series that has just taken the previous three movies that they've made and scrubbed them from canon yeah i can't think off the top of my head that of anything else that's done that it's simultaneously scrubbed them from canon but also says well i guess if you want to believe that those happen they don't exactly like completely rip them out but they more or less an alternate timeline of you know continuing on from the franchise from what happened after two if you want to believe that right. i know you go into detail with this a lot more uh in the podcast but yeah this is odd the only one i can think of is maybe star wars but that one not necessarily because it started with it started in the middle and then went back to the beginning and then came back and did it after towards the end of episode nine up until this point so that's the closest comparison i can make and that's not really even worthy of a comparison anyways Yeah, I was thinking the same thing as well, actually, but this one is completely different, and we know that because not too far into the movie, they say Dr. Loomis, after the events of Halloween 2, spent the rest of his life trying to find Michael, and he never did, which we know if you're going off the Curse of Thorn canon, which is what I call it, you'll know that's completely not true, and he did find him, and they had many confrontations and showdowns and whatnot but according to this movie none of that ever happened and i've still got more to say about that uh here in just a bit but before we get uh too far into that this movie was released august 5th 1998 which was nearly to the same month three years after the previous movie the previous movies were coming out uh well four and five came out within a year of each other and that didn't work very well. So yeah. then between five and six, it took six years, and this one took three. So, Yeah. That just all kind of came from budget concerns and pre-production getting right. stuck in that little pits for a while, at least for six. Yeah, Halloween's had quite the roller coaster um, when it comes to releasing movies. They don't exactly have a consistent schedule. It's just, okay, well, now we have money. Let's do it. Or now we finally got through production. Let's do it. That just seems to be the case at this point. This movie is directed by Steve Miner, who has directed a lot of TV. He did direct the movie Warlock from 1989. Never seen it. I mean, it barely rings a bell. Uh, He also did the TV show The Wonder Years, which many of you may know. He also did Switched at Birth and Make It or Break It. Like He directed uh-huh. some of the episodes, not like he did the whole thing. Yeah. And he also directed Friday the 13th Part 2 and 3. 
Well, I can see at least at one point where that inspiration came from. Sure. Um, yeah, that's interesting. It seems like everybody attached to this is kind of all over the place with the projects they've been involved with. Yeah. Um, so the people that ultimately wrote the movie, uh, Robert Zappia. Uh, Zappia's next biggest claim to fame is being on the production staff for Home Improvement. And yeah, good. <laughs> most recently, he did uh, worked on the, the Tom and Jerry show. Gotcha. That's so, interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, also, Matt Greenberg wrote the movie. He has done some slightly more significant things. He wrote Reign of Fire, which was that early 2000 movie I wasn't allowed to watch, even though I wanted to, because it had dragons and Christian Bale and Gerard Butler. It looked awesome. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) um, He also did Seventh Son, which has been more recent. That one might have came to theaters, mostly direct-to-video, probably. Starred Jeff Bridges. Yeah, I do remember hearing about that, but I never saw it. Yeah. Uh, 1408, the uh, Stephen King adaption. Oh, yeah. Sam Jackson. I haven't seen that one either, but I know about it. Yeah, it's it's pretty decent. So he's done some bigger things than Robert Zappia. I don't understand where Robert Zappia even came from. It's like the writer of Halloween 6. Never really written a movie before in his life, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, just a big fan of the series and felt like they felt like he could take it in the right direction. But then it was ultimately wrestled away from him and they changed so much. But it does seem like with these movies... It's just people that have really never done anything before or have nothing, no credits to give them me. I just don't understand how this works in Hollywood. Like the guy who wrote X-Men Origins Wolverine, he has done nothing since pretty much, did nothing before. We have no picture of him. Who is this person? Why did they let him a part of the X-Men franchise? I don't, I don't know. My guess, and this probably still also relates to Halloween, is they hire a guy to put the name of the company on. Mm. So basically they direct or they direct the guy that they has the has the name of writer or the name of director in these kinds of movies so that they so that it feels like they have the name um, but in reality it's the studio directing the picture. They just have a name to put the face to. That's just my yeah, guess. That in that sense they're cheaper than getting like a big name director. <laughs> That's the only thing I could actually think of. Okay, so the movie stars Jamie Lee Curtis, actually. She is returning to the franchise after almost 20 years. Yeah, nice to have her back. I mean, at this point, of course, she's gotten much bigger as an actress. Oh, yes. And one of the reasons why she came back was she's like, well, yeah, this is is the series, this is the movie franchise that basically began my acting career. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the reasons why she came back. Uh, Her reasons then changed later on to production. Um, But yeah. Uh, the movie also stars Adam Arkin. When I popped it on, I saw the name and I thought it said Alan Arkin, who is a famous veteran actor. And I, I've, I had seen it about once before and I did not remember him yeah. in this. But it's not. It is his son, Adam Arkin. Gotcha. Also, Michelle Williams. Very yeah. famous now. I saw that in the credits. I was like, what? Coming fresh off of Manchester by the Sea. Oh, yes. Also, this movie introduces Josh Hartnett, who 
Uh, kind of became a teen heartthrob around this time. I remember seeing him in The Virgin Suicides. He was Mr. Cool in that. And also, many of you may not know this, but he was offered the role of Bruce Wayne in Chris Nolan's Batman Begins. Oh, wow. That would have been interesting. Yes. So we nearly got a Josh Hartnett Batman trilogy without Christian Bale. But for some reason that I can't remember, Hartnett turned down the role. That's unfortunate. (laughs) And uh, I read this in a magazine somewhere, and he has regretted it ever since because Christian Bale is an Academy Award winning actor who has gone on to do huge things. Josh Hartnett has kind of disappeared from the spotlight for the most part the only other thing i can think of him in is penny dreadful tv series i saw him in some of that i i know he's done a couple other things but just batman could have been the big launch to his career this this was pretty good for him uh, to start off with in a Halloween movie because that had a lot of recognition and cult following but I, i read a quote that he was really reluctant to join this movie as his first role he's said is that even a thing still and is it going direct to video and yes there was kind of a uh, kind of a substantiated rumor floating around this was going to be direct to video because the previous movies were doing so bad yeah i can see why that's a concern um, like you said, the previous movies have just not been doing very good. And so for a guy who's kind of an up and coming actor, that would be a concern of his, I would assume. Yeah. The movie also stars Adam Hand Bird, who many of you may know as young Alan from Jumanji. Oh, haven't seen Jumanji, but what? I'll take your word for it. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I know. Okay. Continuing, uh Jody Lynn O'Keefe, LL Cool J, Nancy Stevens, uh, Janet Lee. Oh yes. Janet Rick Lee has of- that name. Oh, yes, Janet Lee, the somewhat star of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't know, Janet Lee is Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it's cool that mother and daughter get to appear on screen here together. Janet Lee was in what many considered to be the original slasher movie, although that's debatable, I guess, with Peeping Tom. Right. Won't get into that here. And then her daughter was kind of what launched more of the modern slashers, even though they weren't made that far apart, really. But uh, anyways, also the part of Janet Lee I read was originally offered to, I believe, PJ Souls, but she was just kind of very ambiguous about whether she would do it or not. So she ultimately didn't give him an answer, and they cast Janet Lee. Right. So Right. Uh, also, this movie stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. I, saw his, I think I saw his name in the credits uh, as Jimmy, and I was like, what? Mm-hmm. Because he's a big name now. I mean, I think the most one of the more recent examples is Inception, and of course he's been in more stuff than that. But yeah, oh, yeah. interesting that Joseph Gordon. This is not his first acting uh, role. It's one of uh, I think 
it was before he got really big. Um, but yeah, interesting that he shows up in this movie. This has got a lot of actors and actresses that will later become very popular, which is interesting to me. Yes. And I did find it interesting because the previous movie introduced Paul Rudd, who went on to be yeah. fairly famous. He's got a new movie coming out this month, Ant-Man. Uh, but Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I would say, has been a much more serious actor yeah. than Paul Rudd. But those two were, were fairly young with these movies, and it, they kind of helped you know, launch their careers in ways. Right. Yeah, now Jimmy is really only here for the first few minutes. But yeah, instead yeah. of a main character. Yeah, he's just very much a side character here. But yeah, it's still interesting to see, like you were just saying, like you were just saying, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and now also Paul Rudd. Just kind of interesting. These two guys are pretty big names now uh, in yes. cinema. Uh, I should note that LL Cool J is not the last rapper to be in a Halloween movie. Really? Yep. For some reason. We are getting another rapper in the next installment that we will be reviewing. I don't know why they thought this was a good idea to put rappers in the Halloween movies, but yeah. we'll we'll see. We'll see. Uh, compare LL Cool J to Busta Rhymes. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that that would be interesting to see uh, next movie where they do with that because I guess I didn't exactly know that there was an actor uh, in this movie until later on. When I was doing research for it. Mm-hmm. Also, this movie is produced by Kevin Williamson. Does that name ring any bells? Well, it should, because Kevin Williamson did the popular CW show Dawson's Creek. He also did Scream, the Wes mm. Craven Scream film, and he also did I Know What You Did Last Summer, which I just saw, actually, a couple weeks ago for the first time, and I really enjoyed it. So Kevin yeah. Williamson was pretty hot commodity around this time, and he wrote the original treatment for this movie. We're not going to talk about it just yet, but I did want to bring it up since we were talking about the uh, crew of this movie. Now, we can briefly talk about the uh, composers, you could yeah. say. composers. <laughs> right. So if you notice in the credits, it says the music is composed by John Ottman. But then it says additional music by Marco Beltrami. These two, they both, I'm like, okay, I've heard of both of these people before. I can't name a thing off the top of my head that either have composed. But when I went to look it up, both of them have composed a ton of very popular movies that I've seen mostly all of them. Uh, it's arguable that Marco Beltrami has done more and he technically was nominated for two academy awards including oh the hurt locker and 310 to yuma but first john ottman was brought on board and he did the usual suspects the cable ah. guy apt pupil uh x2 uh even the new x-men movies fantastic four the uh older ones and then marco Beltrami did fantastic four the 2015 one kind of interesting uh, John Ottman also did Valkyrie, Astro Boy, The Nice Guys, and his latest is he is doing the score for the new movie about Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Just Very all over the place. Yeah, these now these are also scores that are not necessarily 
high in high regard. Oh um, no, they're not bad or anything, but they're just not ones that you tech usually would remember. Right, Any, like anything from John. I would even say anything from John Carpenter uh, sure. would be a good example. Yeah, and it should be noted that we've we've had Alan Hayworth. He it was originally John Carpenter. Alan Hayworth came on to do the score together. John dropped out, and then it was just Alan for a while, and right. he's gone now. So we got John Ottman, but apparently they uh, the studio didn't like John Ottman's score, and I remember watching a special feature on the disc where John Ottman is like, they didn't like my stuff. They came in, rewrote some things, totally changed some stuff up. Uh, one of the most prominent scenes is when Michael is walking down the hallway and it's a, it's a upward shot, kind of an upward shot of him walking. That was completely different in the original score and original cut of the film. So the uh, I think it was Bob Weinstein came in and said, we're going to bring in Marco Beltrami. He's popular. He's done the Scream movies. Uh, so if you detected some score from Scream in this, that's because it is directly lifted from Scream. Right. Yeah, there there. Yes, the music some at points is from Scream. There is a scene as well that has, I think. I think it may have been Scream 2, if I read yeah. that right. That's playing on the TV. Oh, Scream yeah. is just kind of here and there in this movie. It's very interesting being a movie that's kind of poking fun at horror movies. And then a serious horror movie comes out and it uses these, but is actually kind of serious. I just found that funny. I believe Dimension produced the Scream films yes. as well. Yes, I believe so you're right. That's why they can do this. I, I don't know why... They would do this. I, I know the original Halloween showed some older horror movies on the TV, and that's kind of been a thing is to reference other horror movies. I wouldn't reference something as popular as Scream, though. Yeah, I mean, Scream came out, what, in 95, right? So that was only about three years before this one came out. Right. Scream so 2 just came out eight months before this one. Yeah. So it feels like, you know, pretty... I would say too recent to start referencing that movie. Plus, it's possible you're just going to remind people of a horror movie that they love, done by yeah. Wes Craven. So. Yeah. <laughs> One that does become pretty much a classic. Oh, yeah. Uh, no more than I would say a few years later, it's been regarded as a classic, and now it, it is. A, I would even consider it a classic. Oh, absolutely. But Marco Beltrami has done Resident Evil, Blade 2, Terminator 3, Hellboy, iRobot, Triple X2, Red Eye, great Rest Quaver movie, people overlook, Live Free or Die Hard, 310 to Yuma, which got him the Oscar nomination. He also did The Hurt Locker, which also got him the Oscar nomination. He did Knowing, which I think is an underrated Alex Porius film. Uh, Jonah Hex, hmm. I actually saw it in the theater, 100% forgot I even saw it. <laughs> uh, World War Z, Snowpiercer. The uh, remake of Carrie, he just did Logan, and most recently he did A Quiet Place. Interesting. Well, there isn't too much to A Quiet Place, but yeah, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, so he's, once again, these come, I mean, this is kind of normal. Composers are just kind of really all over the place. Right. Um, unless you're John Williams, then you only do magic. Yeah, unless, <laughs> yeah, very rarely if you're John Williams and sometimes Hans Zimmer, you'll, yeah. they'll be, okay, well, of course they did this. You can just kind of tell, and it just kind of seems like a movie that they would do. But other than that, other than unless, unless your name is 
Hans Zimmer, maybe, or especially John Williams, maybe even James Horner, that, but he's, he's unfortunately oh, dead. Absolutely. You would have, you would be like, oh, of course he's on this project. But these guys are, once again, they're not in high regard uh, when it comes yeah. to composing a film score. I've kind of been disappointed with Hans Zimmer lately. He's just, uh, it's just not even been a score. It's mostly just been like these soundscapes. I don't know, with Batman and Dunkirk. Anyways, yes, James Horner and John Williams, great composers. Yes. So I should note that this movie has a 5.7 on IMDb. Oh, dear. Yeah. It also has a B- minus on CinemaScore. Yeah, the first thing the score, that's not good. No, it's not. Uh, the thing that I guess should give us hope that is positive is technically <laughs> Halloween H2O is in the top five uh, rated Halloween movies. Well, <laughs> I don't know how much hope that gives because if at least from my ratings, that doesn't mean too much. <laughs> Yeah, I I went ahead and listed all of them from greatest to least because I'm like, where does this sit with the rest of them? Yeah. And it sits right there in the middle pretty much, but it's still within the top five. So uh, just to run through them really fast, the first one is, of course, Halloween. 7.8, Halloween 2, the original 6.6, Halloween, the Rob Zombie remake 6.1, Halloween 4, 5.9. So Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, is higher rated than this one. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, it is. H2O, 5.7. Halloween 5, 5.2. Halloween 6, 5. Halloween 2, The Rob Zombie Remake, 4.9. Oof. Something to look forward to. Yeah, great. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which is technically not canon but still it has a 4.7 and halloween resurrection which will we be reviewing uh here pretty soon it's got a 4.1 next week or next <laughs> month oh i'm so excited uh oh yeah, the perfect I was looking score. at these scores today and i realized that we weren't jumping from here to the to the rob zombie remakes and i found that oh mm. yeah we got to go through halloween resurrection oh my mm. word that score is horrific and I was yeah. like, ah, great. So quite a drop, though. Still, yeah. 5.7 is bad, but it's quite a drop to a 4.1. That's horrible. Right, right. Ooh. Okay, so this movie had a budget of $17 million. Pretty common for the previous movies were around $15 million budget. Yep. The box office uh, here domestically, it grossed $55 million, which is Great, because the previous three movies didn't do very well. Yeah, and especially for that budget, I know we talked about this uh, a couple podcasts ago, is that the ratio of budget to revenue is really big, which which means they made a lot of money, even though it only made whatever much you said. That's still a lot of money, given how much the movie cost. Yeah, I guess the previous three movies were around five million for the budget, and at the box office they grossed around fifteen, so about three times their budget. Right. This movie was given seventeen, which was, I think, the right move. Yeah, yeah. 
So adjusting for inflation, this is actually the second highest grossing Halloween film after the very original Halloween. Oh, yeah. It sounds like there hasn't. <laughs> yeah, there isn't anything ex- that hasn't gone past the original, which I, th- I honestly find to be interesting, given that I would hope that it, or think that at least two would surpass it. Not not the case. Number one holds the top spot and still to this day. Oh, yeah, it, it does. And I am going to make a prediction right now. The new Halloween film coming out this October will unseat the original as far it's, as box office goes. I, it's very possible. I, I really would. I'm going to hold my judgment until opening weekend to see what all what everyone thinks of it before I give a prediction because it could go either way. Uh, for me, it could either not do very good or could do extremely well. Hopefully, given that John Carpenter's back, I'm leaning more towards it's going to do really, really well. Opening weekend for this movie, it actually opened at number three. Ooh. Opened at number three with $16 million. It nearly made its budget back, so that's... Not bad that's at all. good. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's actually a pretty... That's actually a good opening weekend. Usually, you want to make your budget back. Yeah. Uh, of course, it was beat out by Saving Private Ryan, oh. which... Yeah, it was in its <laughs> third week, but regardless, and it was still beat out by uh, Nick Cage and Brian De Palma film Snake Eyes. Don't think I've heard of that one. That's nobody has. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, I should note that the Parent Trap remake came in at number five. So very. Was close. this his opening weekend? Uh, no. Oh, okay. But that just shows you being number five with everything right. else going on yeah it was kind of a kind of not too high of a august uh, except for saving private ryan of course and all of these movies saving private ryan made about a million more than this movie and yeah. uh snake eyes was maybe a couple hundred thousand more so it wasn't like it was a big beat out or anything right yeah it was all pretty close in number anyways it sounds like so as Alan mentioned, Carpenter is officially coming back for the new one, but he also nearly came back for this one. He did. He, yeah, he said he would direct, but he wanted $10 million at the least. That's like, let me think here. That's almost, that's almost half the, well, it's over half the budget. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he wanted to kind of be compensated for the money that he lost and the ones that came before, which... I mean, can you really blame the guy? <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, you know what? Carpenter's coming back. You give him the ten million. Yeah, right. <laughs> y- you would you would expect that they would do that, but I guess for maybe probably for budget constraints, they didn't do that. Also, another interesting thing I found is if you go to YouTube, you can find deleted scenes that are not even available on the massive, supposedly Ultimate Edition box set. They were only in the FX TV version, which has yet to be released for some reason. I'm sure we'll get it in an even bigger box set after the new film is released to home video and even probably a year after that. That's kind of the issue with some of this stuff is... They will always release box sets, but they'll always hold things back. Yeah. So they can release new ones. Or there'll be a brand new movie that comes out, making your old box set kind of obsolete because it's not the definitive edition. Yeah. That's just how marketing works, I guess. Yeah. It's frustrating. 
Did you notice while watching this movie that Michael Myers' masks look different? I did not, but I read later that apparently it was changed during, I think, post-production um, and reshoots. I didn't notice it at all, though, at least some when I was watching it. I think I wouldn't have noticed it, but I had seen screen tests before with all of the different masks, and there was like five or six of them. Some of them were very close to the original. None of them have been close to the original. I'm thinking this new movie will be the one to finally bring back the original Shatner mask. Some of them looked horrible. I mean, the worst ones we've ever seen. And I'm talking to you, Halloween 4. (laughs) Yeah. But anyways, um, yeah. So there are a couple scenes... Uh, okay, so when, uh, well, these are not spoilers, but in the bathroom scene where the lady gets her keys taken, that's a different mask. When, uh, Michelle Williams looks out the window and Michael is peeking in through the door area, that's a different mask. Hmm. And I'm pretty sure when Michael and Lori come up to face to face for the first time, that's also a different mask, but they kind of cut it in such a way as you don't see it. Right. Yeah, I yeah, I wouldn't necessarily have noticed it. I know at least the one when Michelle Williams looks outside, it's a pretty distant shot, so it would be kind of hard to tell. Um, anyways, yeah, I maybe I'm sure if I went back and watched it again, I would have been able to notice that. But for me, it was neither here or there uh, when I when I was looking at the mask and seeing if it was going to be different in different shots or not. Well, listeners, we are about to get into spoilers, so. I guess it doesn't matter if you haven't seen Halloween 6. Um, yeah. <laughs> if you haven't seen Halloween 1 or 2, I guess. Then... Really, you could just come from Halloween 1 and things would be not really have changed. There isn't really much in Halloween 2 to get you to here. So. And this one does a decent enough job. If you are not acquainted with those films in a number of years then you can come into this one and not feel lost, thankfully. Yeah. Well, I would say not too lost, but yeah. Not completely lost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You could probably work your way through it. So, spoiler warning, right now we are about to get into all the juicy details. If you don't want this movie to be spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and watch it. Come back and hit play, and we'll be ready to talk about it. The movie opens in Langdon, Illinois, October 30th. Yeah. What? <laughs> you you know where that is? No, I, I don't. Actually, I did look up Haddonfield today. It doesn't exist, uh, I, as I figured. Langdon, Illinois. I had no idea where it comes from, but I'm just confused because we usually always start in Haddonfield, and this time, no, we're in Langdon for some reason. Yes, Langdon, Illinois. Kind of a surprise, not Haddonfield. October 30th, 1998. Marion Chambers, played by Nancy Stevens, Dr. Loomis's colleague, who we do see in Halloween 1 and 2, and his eventual caretaker, arrives home to find her front door ajar. She enlists the help of neighbor Jimmy, played by young Joseph Gordon-Levitt, to call the police. After phoning the police, he decides to check out her house. He finds her office to be ransacked, but no one else inside. Feeling it safe to go in, Marion ventures in to find the file of Laurie Strode slash Carrie Tate to be left on top of her desk. She, along with Jimmy and his friend, are swiftly murdered by none other than Michael Myers. Uh, 
The police arrive to explain Michael was never found after the hospital fire on the night of Halloween in 1978, 20 years ago. Dr. Loomis spent his life looking for him, but never found him. During the montage opening credit sequence, we learn Laurie Strode died in a car crash while going 80 miles an hour in a 45. But a woman named Carrie Tate awakes from a awakes screaming from a nightmare about Michael Myers, and that woman is none other than Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, reprising her role after nearly 20 years. Jamie, who faked her death to start a new life with her son on the other side of the country. She is now headmistress of Hillcrest Academy, a private boarding school. It is October 31st, Halloween, and the school has planned a camping trip to Yosemite National Park. Carrie's son, John, played by Josh Hartnett, recently turned 17 and is feeling the increasing pressure of his mom's controlling parenting methods. Not letting him go on the Yosemite trip is the last straw for him. Luckily, his girlfriend Molly, played by Michelle Williams, can't go either, and neither do his two friends Charlie, played by Adam Han Bird, and Sarah, played by Jodie Lynn O'Keefe, want to go on the trip. So, the four scheme a way for them all to stay behind and have their own private romantic getaway in the basement of the school. The only problem is, Carrie realizes she is smothering her son and decides to let him go on the trip. Later, a few miles outside of the town, a woman's van is stolen by Michael, which he uses to follow Carrie from the town to the school. Meanwhile, Carrie is having a secret tryst with the school's guidance counselor, Will Brennan, played by Adam Arkin. Today, being Halloween, Carrie keeps having visions of Michael Myers stalking her around campus and around town. She decides to come clean and tell Will that night about her past. After finally telling Will the truth, she starts to worry why John hasn't called her from Yosemite. She then realizes Michael attacked her not long after she turned 17, and John has passed that marker as well. In a panic, she runs to his room to find his sleeping bag and, su and supplies lying on his floor. Fearing the worst, she grabs her gun, runs for the door, and nearly shoots the security guard, Ronnie, played by LL Cool J. The three go searching the campus for the stragglers. Meanwhile, John and his friends have kicked off their romantic evening in the school's basement, but Michael begins to pick them off one by one, starting with Charlie, then Sarah, and then chasing John and Molly across campus until they are rescued by Carrie and Will. When at last Carrie's worst nightmare is realized as she comes face to face with her long-lost brother, Michael is alive and ready to finish the job he started 20 years ago. Carrie gets John and Molly to safety when all of a sudden Will grabs the gun from her hands shooting what he believes to be Michael rounding the corner, but it turns out to just be Ronnie, the security guard. The two are devastated at the tragic mistake, but have no time to mourn when Michael comes out of a door behind them and stabs Will in the back, thus murdering him. Carrie grabs the kids and heads for the gate. She tells Molly to get John help since he was stabbed in the leg by Michael and call the police. Carrie locks the gate, grabs the axe, and heads back into the school, shouting Michael's name. The two face off in an intense game of cat and mouse, with Carrie coming out on top the winner. When the police and ambulance arrive, Carrie, fearing Michael not to be dead, since she knows all too well from previous experiences, takes the axe and a cop's gun, hijacks the hospital van, and drives off in an insane fury. When Michael awakes, he grabs at Carrie, but she slams on the brakes, throwing him through the windshield. Once he gets up, she runs him over, but drives right off a cliff, which throws her safely from the vehicle, 
right, and pins Michael between a tree and the van. In a surprisingly uncharacteristic display of sympathy, Michael looks bewildered, trying to take off his mask, and reaches for Lori. The siblings touch hands, right before Lori swings her axe, lobbing off Michael's head, finishing him for good as credits roll. Well, I'll say this much, at least it's a lot simpler than the last one. Oh, yes, yes. The last one went to Insane Town, and this one was much simpler. But like I promised, I was going to explain Kevin Williamson's original treatment for this movie and how it connected to Halloween 4, 5, and 6. So like I said, originally, they didn't want to do a soft reboot. They wanted to make a direct connection to Halloween 6 and continue on the story from there. So I'm going to give you a recap of the Williamson treatment so you can see the differences and similarities. So in Williamson's treatment, the person at the beginning is not the nurse. It is, in fact, Rachel Loomis, who is Dr. Loomis's daughter. Now, we never got to ever see that in the movie. Uh, also, uh, Carrie slash Lori runs an all-girls prep school in Briarcliff, Maine called Tyler Prep School. Uh, Lori's son is named Mick, and he's the only boy at the school. Instead of going to Yosemite, they're preparing for an all-Halloween dance with the neighboring boys' prep school. Molly has a crush on Mick, but she's ugly and gets a classic makeover. A jerk named Sarah... <laughs> a jerk named Sarah gives an oral report on the Haddonfield murders and recaps Halloween 4-6, through 6, making them canon, and Jamie, Lori's daughter, she abandoned for some unspecified reason which I will explain here in just a minute. Lori confides in the English lit teacher, Jake Brannon, who confronts her about drinking and she goes off on him. Mick pretends to be the shape, aka Michael, and attacks Molly in the girls' locker room with the aid of Sarah as a mean prank. He also does this because he knows of Lori's past since he found her diary 20 years ago, and he does this so she'll send him to live with his dad. Uh, the guard is an older female named Hattie. Michael infiltrates the campus in a similar fashion, but Hattie ultimately sees him, calls the police, he chases her around, stabs her in the heart, and she's done. Mick gets grounded to his room, but Sarah sneaks in and they have sex. Molly flirts with a stud guy, that's what it says, and the shape appears. She thinks it's a joke, but the boy is murdered by the shape. And for those of you who don't know, the shape is Michael. Molly runs to Lori, the phones are dead, and the gate is rigged shut. They try to find Sarah at the dance, who has a cell phone. Kids run to buses, Lori attacked by the shape, and Mick saves her, and they run. The police are blocked from going up the mountain to the school because a car crash blocks the tunnel, and Michael is the cause of it. So they send a helicopter up and load the helicopter with kids, but Michael murders the copter pilot. So Jake, the English teacher, tries to fly the chopper. But since he has no idea how to fly a helicopter, he crashes it into the mountain. Everyone dies. And Lori sees it careen down the mountain. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. Lori and Michael have a standoff, but Mick and Sarah see it happen and scream from the window in the building and the shape goes after them. The shape attacks the kids, but Molly saves their lives. But Sarah gets murdered. So it's only Molly and Mick. And then they join up with Lori. Uh, the three find an old school bus to take them down the mountain. Michael is on top of it. They don't know it until he jumps inside. The kids fight him off while Lori drives. 
They crash into a different tunnel. Molly dies by a surprise attack, and Mick kills the shape, but he comes back. And the shape kills off the police who come into the tunnel one by one from a new helicopter. Lori starts up the copter wings. Mick and the shape fight. Mick lures Michael into the propellers and slice him in half, finishing him off for good. Now, just to finish this off, Robert Zappia took that idea and with he there's an excerpt from one of the first uh scripts where it fleshed out the oral report that sarah gives which consists of a recap of halloween one through six excluding three of course and it shows flashbacks of all the movies while the oral report is given and it visibly upsets Lori. sarah says the book she is reporting on says it's likely that Lori faked her death changed her name and lives under a new identity i think this is stupid because the book should contain pictures of Lori, and the students, especially Sarah, should realize Lori and Carrie look the same. The book claims she most likely faked her death and left her daughter Jamie up for adoption, so Michael would never know Jamie to be a Myers, but of course the same thing happened to Lori since she was adopted by the Strodes, and Michael knew that was his sister and came after her. The scene ends with Lori explaining... Oh, I'm sorry, the scene ends with Sarah explaining the death of Jamie and Carrie running to the bathroom to throw up. So interesting. It's kind of funny because at about one moment in this movie, I had an epiphany, and I said, "You know what would make a really intense movie, although albeit very controversial, is if Michael, uh, just or maybe not even Michael, just some random killer started killing off some of the school kids as the day was going on, and." As time, of course, as the day progressed, people started getting a little bit paranoid, saying, okay, well, where did this person go? Then have come to find out they it's a killer on campus. Obviously, this is very controversial, and I wouldn't have made for a very good, a very popular movie, uh, especially that Columbine would happen very soon after this. But that sounds pretty similar to the idea that I had, albeit they did it a bit carefully a bit more carefully than i had in, had envisioned in my mind but yeah it's this could have worked the treatment could have worked uh but there is still some pretty ridiculous stuff in it like michael getting chopped in half by the propeller blades the kid flying the helicopter you know michael how killing off the two pilots to cause this you get the idea Albeit an interesting treatment, uh, not so sure if it feels very Halloween-y to me. And this one, it feels a bit more Halloween-like, but not as not as much as the original. I do like the idea that you had of kids disappearing one by one. They don't know what's going on. And I think I almost would have liked the idea more if... It wasn't if it comes out to not be Michael and it was yeah, a copycat yeah. killer, that would be interesting. Right. Like I said, very it'd be an interesting story to have, albeit very controversial due to current events. Right. I will say I am glad we got the movie we do have now instead of Williamson's original idea because that was a little too wild, I yeah. think. It they needed to ground it more back to the original what made the original work with just more intimate settings more frightful things not crazy 
over-the-top action or cliched bullying and ugly right. duckling scenarios or whatever. So I'm glad we did get this movie. So let's talk about it. Yeah, let's do that. It opens with Mr. Sandman. Yeah, I was thinking that too. And I was Im- immediately brought back to uh, Back to the Future, I think, is the movie oh. I'm thinking of. Okay. And I'm just like, I know this. I know this song. <laughs> well, Halloween 2 opens with this song as well. That's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I forgot about that. Okay, now I see the connection because I was like, why are they playing Mr. Sandman? Yeah. I understand everything now. I still don't know why it was ever chosen. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. But re- <laughs> regardless, I. Guess I yeah. Uh, regardless, I'm really pleased with how this movie opens. It looks just like how it's like lit and shot, yeah. completely different from Halloween 6 and the previous ones. This one looks much more professional. It's bringing me a lot closer to the original. Uh, I'm very excited with how this movie opens. It's I'd say it's very well done, especially compared yeah. to the other ones. Yeah, and it got a bit of a laugh out of me, too, because the first thing we see is the knife, and it comes down and stabs the pumpkin, and we're carving a pumpkin, and one of the big things, of course, is opening Mm -hmm. with a pumpkin in the title sequence. That actually made me laugh, and I was like, okay, I understand that you know we're not necessarily going back to the pumpkin thing again, but that is really funny that they would begin with a mom carving the pumpkin, and her kids just going wild over it, Yeah, kids are also running around in the neighborhood. And, the, and stuff like that. Yeah, I do also really enjoy this opening up, I would say, up until, up until maybe a certain point. I was like, oh, I'm really on board. I'm okay. really enjoying where this is going and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I would say that this, like you said, looks very similar to the original in terms of how it's shot, how it's lit, and things like that. I do really enjoy this opening. Did you recognize this nurse? I did not. Well, I thought she, I figured that she was from a previous movie. Um, but I didn't necessarily recognize her. Yeah, I have seen the first one so much that I knew she was at least from the first one, but then I realized she was also in the second one. Gotcha. It makes sense to bring her back because in both times she was, I guess, kind of close with Loomis. They had worked together before, so it makes sense it's possible their relationship developed after that and yeah this is the first movie halloween movie without dr loomis yeah yeah it is he physically is dead uh he technically is considering the movies he didn't die in the last one but yeah here it's just been 20 years so he has died uh at this point both physically and in the movie's sake yeah no dr loomis in this movie which automatically give i would even say raises the tension a little bit because he was kind of the embodiment of all good and now it's kind of moving on to jamie lee curtis at this point i thought it was they they handled it really well with explaining what dr loomis had done in the 20 years he had passed on this woman was kind of his caretaker and nurse it worked really well for me i was also really surprised to see joseph gordon levitt yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of his intro because oh. this is oh well, okay. this is the intro to uh, his character. This is when we this is when we're given the uh, Jason mask. Uh, yeah, obviously it is a play on Jason, just to kind of you know nudge the filmmakers and stuff like that. But yeah, random jump scare out of nowhere uh, into this. But I'll, I can buy this one. It's Halloween day or whatever. 
I can mm-hmm. I can go with it. But these jump scares come back more than once, and after a while, it starts to become annoying. But yeah, is interesting to his character. He's a very interesting character. It's unfortunate that he only lasts for about five minutes, but I understand why because he's not that big of an actor at this point. Yeah, the classic '90s jump scares. Yeah, are here. Uh, Scream mocked them really well. This one thought. Hey, that's a great idea. That's what people like. Yeah. <laughs> like no. Right. Uh, mm, I, I did really like Jimmy's. Joke. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. Uh, th- I did really like uh, when Jimmy goes in the house and he's like, Jimmy's been suspended five times already this year for getting a little crazy with the stick. Yeah. I, I liked his lines. Yeah. And now had this movie kind of gone more towards a scream route, which I do think would have been a pretty fun and interesting idea to do with the Halloween franchise. Uh, yeah. Then I would have been like on board and be like, okay, that's funny. Here I'm just like, oh, okay. That's an odd line to say, you know, but whatever. I mean, it, I'm not terribly enthused with this part of the opening, but I'm going along with it at this point. Uh, although there is a pretty funny and also very confusing line that comes up when uh, one of the kids, I forget exactly his name, but one of the other kid who stays behind with uh, with the nurse, he is just like, you know, secondhand smoke kills, right? And she goes, yeah, but, oh no, haven't you heard that secondhand smoke, that secondhand smoke kills? And she says, yeah, but they're all dead. Right. This, for a couple of reasons, this line exists. Uh, it, the main reason being that it, foresha- it foreshadows that they three are going to die later. But it's just an odd line just in general to say in just passing conversation. Yeah, the opening is fairly lighthearted, you could say, while still maintaining an atmosphere of tension, but it is much more comedic. And honestly, some of this writing feels very much more so like Kevin Williamson might have done this as well. And then the movie does change tone in... As after these first murders, and then it's more dark, I would say. Yeah, I think that's part of the reason why I wasn't so completely enthused with this opening is because it was mm-hmm. kind of conflicting tones for a little bit until it found, okay, now we're actually getting get in, start being in, getting to that more intense, darker tone now. But yeah, this at first is hilarious, and then we start stepping into it. That middle portion is kind of muddy in my mind. So after the first murders and after we kind of get the exposition scene of what had been going on with Dr. Loomis and Michael Myers and they better alert Haddonfield, which is a red herring. Thankfully, they don't go to Haddonfield. That's not where Michael's going, which is a nice change of direction. So it's not literally the same movie over and over again. I... Uh, I'm pumped during this opening credits montage sequence with the music. It's kind of been rescored. Yeah. Uh, the the guy doing the voice of Dr. Loomis, as we said, uh, Donald Pleasance had already passed. So this guy, I think his name is Tom Kane or something. He does voices. So uh, pretty good imitation as well. I could tell it wasn't him. But I'm pumped because I love the music. I love the montage. I'm I'm ready. I'm excited. This is a new Halloween. Yeah, and I'm kind of there with you. I mean, yeah, I figured that this was somebody else coming into the voice of uh, Loomis because it didn't exactly sound like him. Um, but 
you know, the the idea is getting across to me. I do really enjoy this music. I'm kind of a sucker for more orchestral kinds of music, um, more orchestral kinds of film score. And for the most part, this this score is really good, especially here and later on down in the movie. It I found it to be very enjoyable. It's unfortunate that there is no official release of this soundtrack. Um right due to the scuffle that happened with Ottoman and whoever, whatever else happened with that. There is no official score, which is unfortunate, but yeah, I really enjoy this music and I'm starting to get into it at this point. It's like, okay, well we'll see where this goes. I'm pretty curious because the last three I've not particularly enjoyed, but this, yeah, this feels brand new. It was, we're getting this almost the turn of the century at this point as well. Things just kind of feel really new but still bringing it back to its roots when they need to and i'm enjoying this when did you realize it wasn't connected with halloween 6 i kind of figured when they brought up laurie strode that's like all right so i take it we're not going to talk about what happened in the last few or maybe we're Right, maybe we're actually retconning what that was said in those last movies. I kind of got that idea when in this opening scene, but as the film went along, I was like, "All right, so I take it we're just retconning what happened. Those last three through six never happened in this timeline." I do, I do gotta say, I enjoy that instead of Lori having a daughter this time around, she now has a son. Yeah, and he's a seventeen-year-old teenager. And I think for the most part, their chemistry in the movie works fairly well. We're not given much time to really know what's going on with their relationship. They have to sum it up fairly quickly. I think for Josh Hartnett's first film, he does fine. I I think they could have got somebody a little better. But I think the dynamic works between an angsty teenage son and mom, especially when the son knows about the mom's past. Yeah, and I would have liked it for the I would have liked for it to go deeper with this cuz I found this to be quite interesting but it's pretty surface level unfortunately. Uh yes, they do have pretty good chemistry how they play off each other and there is like basically the first conversation that we see them have um you can kind of tell when the atmosphere changes and they go from this pretty normal conversation to okay the son's being hostile because he's just kind of fed up with his mom and his mom's trying to backfire you know the conversation i don't think leads very organically but it gets the point across that mom is an alcoholic she's basically suffering some from some sort of ptsd from what happened obviously from before with michael this is very evident from the flashback we get um yeah, so I enjoy this aspect, but it's unfortunate that it's pretty surface level because I feel like this would have made for, I feel like this would have made the stakes higher had they developed this and strengthened this bond more. But unfortunately, they don't do that, and so later on, when the sun's being attacked, I don't really feel much for really either character because they're the connection is barely there, at least. But I'll give it this. They're going into more thematic, into more thematic territory. The mom has addictions to; she's an alcoholic essentially, and because of whatever happened in the past, she's kind of messed up. I like this, and there is a portion of the movie where I'm just like, okay, well, she obviously needs help, and the counselor the, that she has a relationship with kind of brings this up, but that never really happens, and I enjoyed it. And unfortunately, we don't ever go deeper with that. And there is a deleted scene where there is more time spent with 
uh, Lori, Carrie, whatever you want to call it, and her counselor boyfriend, where he goes into his own backstory, his own kind of struggles, and how they kind of have this bond over that. Unfortunately, that's cut from the movie, so I think what they should have done instead was not have this whole sequence of Michael hijacking this woman's car. It just, it's a really odd transition. It kind of detracts from where we've established ourselves with the film. So instead, they should have cut that sequence and left in the more character-building sequences. It's kind of a weird sequence, I think, where the whole car gets stolen. Yeah, yeah, it really is an odd sequence. And going back just a sec to the mother and son relationship, I kind of got, well, when okay, when I'm watching a movie that's pretty light and trying not to show my hand too much here, um, doesn't have too much to its substance, I begin to think, okay, well, how could they have done this same thing but made it a better movie? There was at one point, it was towards about the middle half of the movie, where I, where I thought to myself, well, hey, what if it was just just a drama about the about mom with PTSD and everything else that she has, and the son and the mom having the same relationship with the counselor? I found I would think that that would be an interesting movie, but we never do get that. But coming back to this scene, yeah, it's an odd scene to have. I understand that uh, this movie is trying to show that how Michael gets to places logically sometimes and so i enjoyed that part of it but at the same time yeah do we really need this because it feels so extra from the rest of the movie that it doesn't really fit and we're introduced to the i guess obligatory annoying side characters that they're friends with for some reason can you imagine john and charlie really being friends or sarah being into charlie yeah, not necessarily. This is kind of a movie where they bring up characters that feel as if they should have more to them, but then don't do anything with it. And yeah. so, yeah, possibly if they had explored this, maybe it would have made more sense, but we don't really, so that's unfortunate. And this movie does have a number of characters also. Uh, we learn Janet Lee is Laurie's secretary, and she's... Also, her mom in real life. And oh, interesting. For, yeah, for some reason, she says uh, she says Sheriff Brackett's line later on from the first Halloween where she said, yeah, oh, it's Halloween. Yeah. Everyone's entitled to one good scare. It's those kind of callbacks that I think are kind of annoying because we don't need a remake, per se, of the first Halloween. Right. And don't do things that just don't make any sense i'm okay with more so visual callbacks as long as they're not too on the nose and this movie i feel doesn't do too many of those it does a couple but not too much yeah the callbacks dialogue wise didn't bother me too much although i can totally see where you're coming from uh i did like the line of everyone's entitled to one good scare although it probably should have been said in a different way or in a different context um yeah maybe that's just kind of my thing in general there are some that work and some that don't maybe in some different context but still in the same movie it would have worked better that they they are neither here or there for me they're not too much of an issue but i can totally see why they would be maybe yeah maybe for maybe more visual callbacks would have helped uh with some of this and i do feel like the first 
half of the movie is pretty much just introducing characters so we can have them established for the second half which is kind of the big showdown which all goes down fairly quickly but we're introduced to ll cool j's character and i don't know do you think he's funny do you think he's just kind of stupid and pointless in this movie it's just i don't know well, this kind of comes into one of my biggest issue. Well, I, not really my biggest issue, but an issue that I have that is pretty big. All of the men in this movie are kind of made out to be uh, sex addicts, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. Because L.O. Cool J, he's, every time we cut back to him, um, almost every time, he, he's talking to his wife and he's reading her some sexual poem. The so. counselor is always wanting to make out with Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> and at one point says, at one point when she's trying to be serious with him, she, yeah. he says, oh, take your clothes off, you know. <laughs> but the son, he's, the son, he's all, he, at one point he says, and actually I think more than once, he says, oh yeah, that's have an orgy. It's like, why? There are no male characters. Oh, yeah, then Michael, I guess, is considered male, but he is a killer, of course. So there really isn't no male in this movie that is, I would even say, uplifting for the most part. Maybe LL Cool J is the most tame example of all these. But this is the kind of vibe I began to get about about 30 minutes. I was like, oh, all right. I see see what what the male characters are are being toted as i don't know if that was the intention but that's exactly what came out that's a really good point all the men are essentially perverts with only one thing on the mind women are just kind of objectified in their minds but it is women who kind of are all the are the powerful ones right in this movie that that do a lot of good and the men try to do good but they they just can't um yes john's friend charlie is extremely annoying And he's a complete pervert. It's just ridiculous how perverted he is. But all that being said, this is so far actually the most clean Halloween movie we've got. That is true. There is no uh, nudity in this one, which I actually found to be quite quite interesting that they didn't go down that route. Um, Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of uh, cleanness, maybe two if you're watching the the tv cut that one's pretty that one's pretty much fine other than that yeah this one i would yeah i would agree with you this is pretty much the cleanest one also i gotta say uh john's haircut is horrible yeah. and it's like a nasty anime haircut poor guy this the hair is not really suiting him that's <laughs> unfortunate i mean if they're going for realism then i'm buying it but the, there probably could have been a better haircut just saying and he wears like a choker necklace. Yeah, I saw that in a couple of shots. That's kind of weird. <sighs> I don't. I don't get it. Once again, I, I feel like there are a lot of interesting characters here, but we're never given the time to ever explore them. Which is, like I said, it's unfortunate. This is a. This is the shortest Halloween movie we've ever got. Yeah. Uh, without credits, it's about an hour and twenty-one minutes. Yeah, that's like Ghost in the Shell length, like the original. Yeah. That's really short. And to be fair, Michael doesn't exactly start really doing things until about an hour in anyways. The one, the pacing in this isn't exactly the best, I would say. I do really like the small town, small California town, and the campus. I think the campus has a nice design to it, and I'd say it's utilized fairly well. 
So I was really pleased with this because the first movie probably has the best locations. And then from there, we've just had a lack of decent, even decent locations. But this one, I think, has a great location and is utilized fairly well. Yeah, and this is pretty much a callback to number two, uh, where that one basically takes takes place completely in the ho- in the hospital. This one's the same way. It, when it all comes down to it, it basically takes place all on the campus. And I like how we never really get a map or get to really see how every room in this place connects, because that makes it really, I would say, it makes it kind of uh, claustrophobic paranoid when it comes to those ending scenes because you don't know what's around the corner as a viewer uh so it kind of makes it really some interesting tension that they bring that they build uh out of just not knowing where we're at in the building and i like i like that portion and i like the design yeah of the of the campus it looks really like out in the middle of nowhere and that kind of once again raises the tension when this all kind of starts going down So I know that we've already mentioned the score before, but getting into the score, I really enjoyed it for the most part. Yes, some of it is pretty much directly lifted from Scream. Some of it's a bit from Psycho. Not much of it, just really only one scene. But for the most part, I really enjoyed this score. Yeah. Not as good as John Carpenter's original, though. Yeah, of course. Nothing's ever as good. And I do like that they took the theme and they made it more orchestral. And then they also started doing some new things with it. Although I wouldn't say they're technically too new because they're also kind of callbacks, maybe unintentionally from the last few. But yeah, it feels like there was some really, there was some real work put into it, which Mm -hmm. is unfortunate that a lot of, some of it was also replaced with stuff from Scream for, for all intents and purposes. But yeah, I really would say anything that is that is an original piece sounds really good. Anything that is not an original piece, and you can tell when it's there. And I kind of figured before I did research that that was what happened. It doesn't sound good. It doesn't exactly fit, which is sad. Because I would have loved to see, loved to hear what the original score was for these moments when, like, especially the chase scenes, when they more or less swapped it out. But the uh, the big studio said, "No, I don't like that." Yeah, during that scene and maybe, I guess, more towards the end, I think the score could have been a little better. Yeah. But I do feel like there's kind of a bit of a plot hole, and that has to do with John going on the Yosemite trip. I can't imagine, because it's, it's really hard for uh, for Carrie to give her son to go on the trip. Right. But she doesn't – I mean, I could understand maybe her not physically going down to the bus to see him off, but maybe looking at him from a window. But no, she just assumes he goes on there. And I guess she has no reason to assume he wouldn't since he wanted to really bad. But knowing how overprotective her nature is, it just seems surprising she wouldn't safely see him off. Right. Right. And to add on to that, John – we see John with like his sleeping bag and stuff at one point. And then when she, when Jamie Lee Curtis goes home, she, of course, the paranoia comes back to her and she runs upstairs and finds his stuff in his room, in his closet. So does that mean that he went home, dropped off his stuff, and then came back? Yeah. <laughs> Just to kind there's, of add on to that. There's some continuity issues there. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about this Michael for a little bit because we have had... In every sequel, 
a new person playing Michael. Now, you might think that's not a big deal because all it takes is a mask in the exact same costume, but no one has ever moved the way Nick Castle has from the original. Right. So slow, so robotic. It's it was incredible how menacing his movements were. And I don't think anybody ever got that except possibly the guy in Halloween 2 did a fairly decent job, but I got a real issue with how this Michael acts and moves because his movements are just so all over the place. It's just, and and I understand they're really trying to get some of these visual callbacks where Michael will be behind them or he'll be in the window and then he'll be gone. But we see him move a lot of times and that just takes away from that macabre atmosphere that he's kind of omnipresent in a way and you'll never know where the shape will be. I just... I don't, and I don't like how he stoops. He just always stoops. And uh, the other thing I really am disappointed with is you can see his eyes so much. Yeah, I we're, hate that. We're kind of getting back into the humanizing of Michael from Halloween Two. Um, I think it works a little bit better here than it does in Two because here, at the at least at the very end, it kind of makes a little bit of sense. Um, but yeah, I do kind of agree with you. He feels just unnatural especially as a Michael character and the original and the original one, which is as we've kind of agreed on the best mo- depiction of Michael that we've had, he has this very menacing look to him, very menacing movement to him. And we don't ever get shots of Michael, like being in the very foreground and our main characters in like in the distance. And we hear him breathing. We never really get much if any of that, which is kind of what yeah, built true. character built character for Michael to be very menacing and more or less a stalker of sorts. We never really get that. And I'll say this. I think he's one of the better Michaels when you compare them to the last three. But yes. even even going down to the mask, he just kind of feels unnatural. Because this mask, especially at times when the lighting is so, he the mask looks like they pulled it straight from Halloween 4. Which, in my mind, is the, one of the worst looking, worst looking masks. There are some times where I think the mask does look great and it looks close to the original, but that's not all the time. This movie is very inconsistent with Michael's mask and how it shows him. Sometimes you just see his eyes really big and plain as day. Sometimes they are hidden in shadow. Sometimes the mask looks without shape. Sometimes it does have features. I will agree with you. This is probably the best Michael since the original but it's just those nuances that made him so great in the original that I feel like we've never had since. Uh, Nick Castle is actually coming back to portray him in the new movie. So yes. I'm pumped. I am very pumped. Yeah, but I, I do agree. It's, this Michael, he, he just feels un, a bit unnatural, which I know is kind of the point. But unnatural for the sake of a depiction of Michael Myers. So I think the dialogue in this movie for the most part works. I think it's kind of a representation of the 90s. I do see it trying to be like scream in certain ways. It's funny, but then there's also some weird lines that I guess I wouldn't get unless, well, I was alive when this movie came out, but I wasn't old enough to understand what they're saying. Like, you are so renaissance. And I thought it was funny when the guidance counselor is like, Oh, I can't join you. I'm having my nipples pierced. Like, I thought that was funny. Yeah, yeah. It, there is kind of some odd dialogue in this 
in this movie, just kind of here and there every once in a while. There's just some weird stuff. Yeah, the counselor, I like his character, but he, I think he has some of the weirdest lines, like you were just saying, I'm going to go get my nipples pierced, which, I mean, it's kind of funny that he's kind of, you know, messing along with the kids as they mess with him. Uh, right. But then later he says the lines, you know, oh, I won't take your clothes off right in the middle of just kind of not really paying attention to what she's saying. There's some odd yeah. stuff here. And I think he's probably, in my mind, one of the bigger causes of this. Oh, yes, I would agree with you. Uh, I also do want to mention that I also do want to mention that I think this movie has done the best job of hitting home with the brother-sister relationship of Michael and Lori. It was discovered in the second one. Lori was barely in it. We really didn't have much time for it, even though they kind of tried to do something with it. But this one actually kind of had some emotional resonance with me when she is kind of pouring out her backstory and she says uh, she's hoping her brother won't find her. I think just thinking of it like that, instead of being like, oh, it's just this man that's stalking him. It's actually her brother that wants to murder the rest of his family. And she's just in constant fear of her brother showing back up. To me, that does seem, that kind of like shows how it is messed up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I do like this aspect that I'm glad that we didn't, it wasn't just a one-off for number two. That's uh, actually a plot point we're going to bring back and we're going to start implementing and start playing off of that i do enjoy that they decided that to go down that route and i think that is a really smart choice um yeah this stuff is pretty it once again just kind of adds to this movie being very quite unsettling quite unsettling in that in that aspect because brother and sister are not necessarily supposed to be like this you know and the whole movie is just kind of bloated with the with this kind of reality and that's just how it's always been but yeah i do agree i do agree this is very uh so it's so uh, like taboo and so out there that it makes it that make it's part of the reason why it makes it as spooky as it is. I once again I, I wish they would have maybe explored this a bit more, made it had a, maybe even brought out their creativity side and maybe made this a bit more thematic. But I understand why they didn't because after all, this is a Halloween movie or not necessarily going terribly deep into things. Just anyways. Two other choices that I'm glad they made is they didn't recast Donald Pleasance. Uh, you know, rest in peace, Donald Pleasance, but it's so nice to have a Halloween movie yeah. free of Dr. Loomis. And I'm I'm feeling that right now. The other movies felt like they couldn't even make one without him. This one just shows we don't need him anymore. Right. Yeah, I'm glad that basically the torch either on purpose or inadvertently have been, has been passed on to Lori now. Uh, for being the face of uh, of good. I do agree. Um, it's kind of nice to just let things go for once. Like you were saying, it felt like we could make a movie without Donna, Donna Pleasance as Dr. Loomis. When in reality, yeah, you kind of can. Uh, you can still make a movie uh, with him. And I would even say maybe be a bit better than some of the other ones before it. So yeah, I do agree. I do like that Dr. Loomis is gone because it, it kind of adds to this tension that, okay, well, who else is going to save Lori now? She's basically on her own at this point. Uh, she doesn't really have a protector. It's up to her now. It's it's It cuts out the playing field. It shrinks it a little bit. So that way, when this ending does come up, it makes it, that stakes are higher, maybe highest that they've ever been. 
I also think this movie does a fairly decent job of giving an explanation of why Michael comes after them without definitively saying this is why he does it. And uh, Laurie comes to the realization when the uh, counselor, when Will says, how old were you when you were attacked? And she said 17. And she sees her son John has recently turned 17. And we could assume that when Michael, when he was six years old or whatever, killed his first sister she was probably around that age as well yeah so it seems that michael goes after his family when they're on the verge of adulthood or possibly losing their sexual innocence or something because we do see it's strongly insinuated that night john and molly will consummate their relationship right and Lori was always kind of afraid of anything of the sort but regardless she did mention a boy that she would probably like to have a relationship with eventually. So I think that's a fairly interesting idea, one that's not really explored, but nevertheless, it's insinuated. And I like that explanation, That's, but it's not definitive, so I'm glad for that too. Right, yeah, there are some subtle things, and then there are some not-so-subtle things in this movie. Uh, the secretary kind of is one that likes to just say a dialogue that is not-so-subtle, um, but, uh, yeah, unfortunately though, I would have to say that this theme, although a good theme to have, it is kind of a cliche at this point because almost all slasher movies kind of go down this route of, you know, the killer going after the one, uh, going, basically killing everyone except for the virgin in this case. And in some cases they are going to about to lose their virginity, but they make it out alive for one reason or another. Uh, it's Although it works, it's once again kind of a cliche at, at this point, and that's that's why um, Scream made fun of this is because every slasher movie did this, and we're taking things from Scream. And I would assume that these that the filmmakers have also seen Scream um, coming into this one, and we're not exactly taking anything out of it. Also, the this movie is fairly violent. I would say it's. Possibly maybe maybe one of the most brutal of the Halloween movies, just with how hard-hitting I feel all of the connections are when people are getting hit or stabbed right. or shot or something. Uh, I would say probably the one that actually got me the most was when Sarah is crawling out of the dumbwaiter and her leg is oh, stuck. Yeah. The dumbwaiter falls on her leg. That got me. And I yeah. that doesn't happen to me easily. So that was a nice effect. Yeah, I do agree. That scene when the dumbwaiter breaks her leg and then you see her crawling away and you see the bones sticking out of her leg. Yeah, that was, I was like, okay, that is pretty pretty heavy even for a Halloween movie. I do have to say, though, um, this violence really doesn't start happening until about the last 30-ish minutes and being an hour and 26 minutes long, the pacing, I think I mentioned this earlier, the pacing... Uh, not necessarily as bad, but it's just like, okay, well, Michael doesn't start doing things until way late into the movie. And that's when things actually start happening. But the first few kills are all off screen, which is at least the first two, I think, which is very unfortunate because everything we know to know is Michael. He always kills in front of us for the most part. Very rarely does he ever kill off screen. And if it does that, it's mainly just used to build tension. But when we have like when we have, I think it's Charlie who dies first, and when, at least in the uh, Academy. 
it doesn't necessarily do much, but even before that, it doesn't really do much at all except to show that Michael is on a killing spree again. I would have loved to see him maybe even come come face to face with Laurie a bit sooner, maybe even halfway through, or maybe maybe even before that, and have the rest of this movie be like a uh, be a very intense thriller from then on. But in a, no, we kind of wait until the very very end to do that. Yeah, and I don't know why they decided to do that. I don't think this movie builds tension very well, whereas yeah. the first one does. I I'd never really feel tense at any time during this movie, even when they are in the thick of it. I'm still just able to pretty much relax while watching this. I yeah. I'm not too fearful for anyone's life per se because I don't. I'm not really too invested in these characters, and that could be said for all the Halloween movies. These are all pretty much throwaway characters. We're pretty much here for Lori. If her son did die, which the movie doesn't go there, then that probably would have been a harder hit. Just from Lori's point of view, not because we care that much about John. And I feel like some of this is kind of the comedy of errors here towards the end with LL Cool J getting shot. And And then coming back later... Yeah, it comes back later completely fine. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And I guess the bow just knocked him out. But. Right. Uh, he had tons <laughs> of blood on the floor. They thought he was dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Will gets stabbed in the back and shakes a lot. Mm-hmm. Maybe um, he just hit a special nerve. Uh, <laughs> who knows? I don't know. Well, but also, Lori hits Michael over the head, and only once, mind you. Uh, they do lots of cat mouse table flipping. Um, yeah, wide tables, running I, under the tables. Michael's on top of the tables. Yeah, yeah, that eh. seems kind of silly. It, it it is. It's all fairly silly. The only time that I was excited and I got chills was when she told the kids to go. She just grabs, she bashes that axe out of its case. She walks up to the campus, and as soon as she yells Michael on cue, that Halloween music starts playing. And that got me excited. Unfortunately, I will agree. Yeah. I will agree. I felt the exact same way. Once yeah, once she screamed Michael and she had the axe and the music started playing, I was like, ah. Because it's like the new score, too. And as we've kind of been praising the score here, it was really, really good. And it's like, ah, yes, the moment has been built. Uh, yeah. And I would even say probably when she grabs Michael and starts driving away with him, I began to not necessarily feel the same thing. But I was like, okay, I, I'm liking this. And then when she has that moment with Michael, uh, I liked that, too. Um, and then she eventually kills him after that. Yeah, there are moments in here that are really, really good. Oh, I also forgot to mention she uh, kicks Michael in the you-know-where and his eyes get really big. I'm telling you, there are these, like, silly moments <laughs> mixed in. Yeah. It, once again, we have some conflicting tones here when it right. really should be serious. But then we're also kind of make, maybe even, like I said, unintentionally. I feel like I'm saying that a lot. Uh with these comedic things that happen when they probably shouldn't be. And I mean, I'm pretty sure in Scream, Neve Campbell kicks the Scream bad guy in the same place, but it right. works in that movie. It's not trying to play it for laughs, but I just right. feel in so many ways this is chasing Scream. Yeah, I I may have mentioned this before, but I'll go ahead and say it again. I 
felt a scream feel. I've had a scream feeling in this movie quite a bit um, from beginning to end, uh, which once and there is a scene where we do see. I think Scream Two is on screen. Um, it's playing on TV, and, and that's where I'm, or maybe Scream One. I can't remember, but yeah, it's kind of like okay, there seems to be a little bit too much of Scream here, which. Once again, had they made fun of themselves and been a parody of the whatever came before them, it would have worked. But we're not doing that. It's meant to be a pretty serious movie, and so it kind of doesn't really work. And for me, it began taking me out because I began wondering, and then I was took it out of the movie because I was wondering about the things that were in the movie. Yeah, it was just kind of a mess, in, in that, at least in that portion. Uh, what did you think of the scene when Michael, like one-handed lowers himself from the rafters oh the only th- the first thing that popped into my mind was spider-man oh. <laughs> so yeah i mean he it just kind of felt like something that michael really wouldn't do is hide up in the rafters yeah it just yeah it just didn't exactly feel like michael myers to me it it doesn't it's completely out of character it's crazy but I will say it looks – I think it looks awesome because the mask looks good and it's like, whoa, you know, he's so strong. He's just like been holding himself up there waiting and he just slowly lowers himself ready to strike. Yeah, I thought that looked cool, but you're right. It's it's completely out of character. Yeah. Once again, had they maybe built up to this moment or done it a little bit of a different way, maybe it would have had a different impact on me. But yeah, this scene where he's just like lowering himself with one hand, although a cool thing to have as he is this that strong – it just is kind of silly. And I think, I do think this all is too short here. Yeah. It, yeah. It's wrapped I, once, up quickly. Yeah. Once, uh, once Michael is essentially put in the body bag, I was like, oh, that, that's it. Of course, we get <laughs> a little bit more after that. But yeah, once, like you were just saying, yeah, it's a bit too short. It is a nice surprise when Lori knows from previous experience Michael is most likely not dead. Right. So she grabs the cop's gun, grabs the van, and goes for it. And I think it looks pretty good. I'm kind of getting a little bit of a Halloween 4 flashback when they're driving and Michael's on top of the truck. But it doesn't really go there. But Lori does seem like she's willing to finish it to the death. And she goes right. off the cliff and pins him against the car. Uh, I think this was a good finishing scene. Yeah, I would say it's a kind of ridiculous that Michael gets pinned with a car. Uh, that just seemed a little bit off to me. But I, I mean, I once again, I kind of get where they're going with it. Uh, now, the scene when it's like cutting back and forth between her and then I think it's maybe her looking in the rearview mirror at Michael in the body bag. I did find that to be quite... Uh, quite really i thought they did a really well good job at building the tension there because you don't because you you're expecting him to just kind of get up and start moving around and stuff but he just isn't doing anything at least not at first so at first i was like okay that's a really good way of building tension when is he going to start moving of course he eventually does but yeah i thought that just small detail was a very interesting way of how they build tension but yeah this scene michael getting pinned by the car is a bit cheesy but i mean i get where they're going with it uh, they set up for uh, Lori to kind of have they have like the sentimental moment here towards the end. Yeah, what do you think of that? Uh, I think it's really confusing how Michael wakes up and he starts like grabbing at his head, like he's confused, and then he reaches out for her in a really sympathetic way, which we've never seen before. So I find this to be odd. 
Yeah, it is a bit odd. I think really the reason they do this is to kind of show that there is some kind of connection. Once again, we're humanizing Michael, just like we were in, I guess, some points in the last ones, but especially two. Uh, I think that's really the whole reason is to show that Michael isn't necessarily all bad, maybe, uh, or he just wants to have some kind of connection with his sister, or he just wants to, or he's trying to finish the jobs, who's reaching out as much as he can because it's always the strength he has left. Yeah, it is odd. It asks um, a lot of questions, and I don't think they necessarily answer them, and maybe that's even the point. But yeah, I agree. It's it's weird at the very least. Were you surprised she beheaded him? At first, I was like, okay, well, she has the axe. Is she going to behead him? Because that's what I thought she was going to do at first when she first grabbed the axe way at the be- before the beginning of this climax. Uh, but I was kind of expecting her to just lop his head off, which she does do. Uh, in a couple of seconds after this. So I wasn't terribly surprised, I guess. So were you overall satisfied with the end? See, that's where I don't know. Um, I feel like they're, this once again goes back to characters not having more to them than what the movie lets out. Uh, had there been more development, these characters been better, more well-rounded and explained, and we got this connection maybe even between Michael and Laurie Strode that was built up through this movie, saying that Michael showed up earlier. Maybe this moment would have been made a, would have made a bigger impact, but it kind of doesn't. It kind of feels like, and also Michael has survived so much in the past movies, and then the one thing to kill him is to lop off his head. It kind of maybe even feels like a cheat. Uh, maybe they could have something more creative. But at the same time, you know, at least we have some kind of closure for a series that is just kind of renowned for never ending. Right. So now you can see why many fans look at this as the end of the series. Yeah. And right. it does seem that way. I, It's pretty hard to see how they could bring this movie back for a sequel when the villain is beheaded. I can understand gunshots because, well, I guess he's supernatural, but being beheaded? I mean, where do you go from there? Yeah, right. Once again, though, it does kind of bring into the mind of, okay, what about the spirit of Michael? Uh, Because he's kind of survived most most of these things. Yeah, being shot, being buried, but then not, but then dying, but then actually not dying because of number six. Uh, yeah, it, there is. Michael's been through quite a bit and has survived every single every single thing that they've thrown at him. And now it takes up to Lori to take him out, which is interesting because the whole time Michael was chasing her, trying to kill her, and then the tables have flipped in the end, and my and Lori ends up killing her brother. Yeah, I'm kind of on the fence with how this all ends, to be honest. So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Halloween H2O 20 years later? Well, Halloween H2O is kind of the same way I felt about the title of this movie. It's odd and doesn't exactly completely fit. But, I mean, if you really think about it, it, it works, I guess. it's This is kind of a silly movie all the way around. There are moments where things just kind of happen and they come off as silly whether that was the intention or not, uh, it is funny. Um, I think that there tends to be a, some a lot of things in here that that came off one way, but the way that they came off one way, but their intention was another way. 
this, but it's it's a really odd movie. There's a bunch of clashing with tones, a bunch of clashing with different scenes and ideas. There's some continuity errors, of course, all over the place in this one. Uh, the men always being basically sex acts is something I really don't enjoy because it just doesn't really do much for the plot. But at the same time, though, uh, these characters are just kind of shallow. Just all the way around the board, they don't have much to them. And had this movie maybe been... 20 minutes longer where we could explore these characters and build these relationships this may have been a better movie or at least at the very least left me it made a bigger impact on me and that's kind of the biggest issue i have is that when i walked out of this movie it's neither here or nor there it's fine it's nothing really crazy i don't think i'd call it really good but it's still something that i had fun watching it's unfortunate that it takes michael 57 minutes to get into this movie actually start doing things with these main characters but when it's all when it's all said and done, I did end up having some fun watching it. Uh, this is not even this is this is probably the better one of the last four that we've gotten. But it is no by no means the best one uh, that we've gotten since the first, or I would even say the second. It's fine if you want to have fun. It's fine. It's got the cliches you're looking for in a Halloween movie. It's but it, at the same time, maybe even this just with the music, it's a lot of fun just to watch. 5 out of 10. I would even give it a mild recommend. A very, very mild recommend. Um, it's fun. It's just a fun movie to watch. But honestly, there really isn't much more to that to it than that. Halloween H2O is a stupid title. But I will say it's not a stupid movie. With a pared-down plot that gratefully sheds the excess fat of its three predecessors, this is a return to the iconic roots of the 1978 Halloween. Yes, I have problems with it, and I do feel like they're mostly nitpicks, but I would say this movie doesn't really do much wrong. It does a nice job of recapping the first two films while providing a new story with a satisfying conclusion. I'm giving Halloween H2O 6 stars out of 10 with a mild recommend, and I will go on record as saying... I think this is probably the uh, the next best Halloween movie after the original so far. I can't really say the second one is because that second one just didn't stand alone on its own. And Lori was barely in the movie. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I'm For me, two and three are just really, really close. I think for me, the only thing that makes two a little bit better... Um, it's just the fact that it feels a bit more like the original, um, it but does. not by too much. Uh, they're kind of, they're really, really close. Really, for me, I guess they really could go either way. Um, there are some things I like more than two than I do in three. There's something that I like th- in more than three than I do in two. They're almost the same for me. I, I think, and I think three, once again, has good potential to be, to have more thematic ideas. And they don't really go overboard with it. They kind of just mention it. And then they just move on. Um, and I mean, maybe if they hadn't teased that, then I would have maybe given it a higher score. Or maybe if they had explored that, I would have given it a higher score. But yeah. Uh, and I think I think I should give it a little credit because I don't think any Halloween movie has ever really had any themes in it, per se. At least yeah, this aside one... from the first one, maybe. That was about it, though. Yeah, Maybe. I feel like this one at least tried to do something. It tried to bring it back to the original. It, I, I will say it gave it a good try. Yes, it can do much better. And 
So basically, the new one coming out is going to ignore all of these movies, including H2O, but it's still very similar. Instead of 20 years later, it's 40 years later. They've not encountered each other, so it's kind of H2O redux. In a way, I don't know if they'll have any other connection beside that very basic plot of they're coming back together after 20 years and they're going to fight it out once and for all, supposedly. So I'm interested to see what the new one can do that this one didn't. But I probably, before I see the new one, I'll probably do a marathon of just kind of this trilogy here back to back and see what I can get from it. See if I get any new experience out of it that I haven't before because it's been uh, it's been quite a while since we've reviewed one and two. Yeah, especially one. We did yeah. that like... Uh about a year and a half ago. Yes. Yeah, I that is, I think, a good idea, though, for the new one to do is just kind of ignore basically everything and do its own thing because uh, that way they don't have to deal with the mess of this timeline because it is a mess. It is the best way, I think, to both make a sequel and a reboot and just tell a classic Halloween story if that's what they end up doing. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us on our review of Halloween H2O. Make sure to stay tuned because we will be coming back next month with our review of Halloween Resurrection. That'll be a fun one. I can guarantee it. (laughs) Also, we have our review out for Jurassic World The Fallen Kingdom. Make sure to go check that out. And we will have a spoiler-free update spoiler free review up on the youtube page if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want it spoiled for you uh i also saw uh the mr rogers documentary won't you be my neighbor uh go watch the review for what i have to say about that it's really fantastic make sure to like our social media pages make sure to like and subscribe so you can always stay updated and also we just launched our patreon page that link will be in the description below uh, it's very cheap. It's the you know price of a Starbucks cup of coffee or even a meal from Taco Bell. You get so much more. It doesn't just go down your gullet and disappear forever. You get some great content that nobody else is getting. You get bonus podcasts, commentary, our thoughts on the latest movie news, uh, Q&A, and much more. So go ahead and head over to that Patreon, and we really appreciate it if you like these episodes that we're doing, you love these retrospectives, and you want them to stay free, then go ahead and show your support and give us a small donation, and we'll give you some great content in return just to show our thanks. We really appreciate your listenership, and we look forward to growing Silver Screen Guide, so make sure to share it with your friends. Share the love. We love discussing movies, and we love discussing them with you. Make sure to stay tuned, and we shall catch you next time.